Hey, Pathway family. Thanks for joining us again in the series that we're doing here called New, where we're looking at things that we're probably fairly familiar with, uh, but hopefully regaining a better understanding, um, a fresh understanding of how these things apply in our lives. So uh, today we're going to be looking at a new purpose and purpose and identity. These are things that come along together. So if you'll indulge me, we're kind of going to dive into both of them a little bit today. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16. And while you're turning there, this is one of my favorite passages because within this passage, we find purpose, we find identity, we find mandate, we find movement. And if you've known me over the years, what you'll definitely notice is that I really engage in my faith through... um, a lot of movement. I, certainly, I love my prayer time and my Bible reading. But it is this, what we're all about and, and, and where we're headed and, and, and what our purposes are that really get me going. And I'm hoping that for you, it's going to do the same thing for you today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. And if you don't know where the book of Matthew is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Here's what it says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under the bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together here, and I pray, Lord, that as we're diving into your word, Lord, that our eyes would just be open to the truths that you have for us, that that we would be able to engage in it in a way that maybe we haven't in a long time or maybe ever before. And Lord, that, that we would desire what you call us to in life. Lord, that we would accept the identity that you give us and that we would live that out. In your name I pray. Amen. There are two images that we find in this particular text, and those images are salt and and light. And when I think of salt, one of the most vivid memories I have about the impact of salt on something was I was speaking at a Bible camp, and this Bible camp had this uh, lake uh, that was there, and this lake was filled with leeches. And so it wasn't uncommon for kids to come up out of the lake and they'd have a leech attached to them. And, you know, of course, you you pour salt on the leech and it just gets off of you pretty quick. But the other thing that this particular Bible camp did, which I thought was ingenious, was they got these giant salt licks or salt cubes that are given to horses, typically. And they put them at the shoreline in the water at the lake. And they put it in that swimming section, kind of created a bit of a, a semicircle of this salt. And anywhere there was this salt, the leeches were less likely to be present. And so the imagery for me was pretty cool because you got these blood sucking, life sucking, you could say, little leeches, parasites that are dispelled by salt. Hmm, I find that interesting. As we look into our story today, uh, one of the things we have to identify is that this passage comes right after the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are called the greatest sermon ever spoken. You know, this is certainly the Sermon of Jesus. 
And, and you start to wonder things like, what possible influence could the people described in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 to 12, all of this stuff in there, what possible um, impact could they have in a harsh, tough world? And I think, well, I know, that this language of salt and light piggybacks what it means to be these people in the Beatitudes, and it gives this impact. We are salt. We are light. It's definitive in that it tells us who we are, but in the telling of who we are, it tells us what we do and, and, and what our role in society is. Jesus is telling us not to live for the kingdom of the world, but rather for the kingdom of God. And then as we do that, he says that we're going to play an important role in this life as salt and light. And he's talking about a new way of obedience. And so it's no accident that he's talked about salt and light immediately after he's talking about what it means to live as a person who is a citizen of the kingdom. He's talking about these beatitudes. It's in learning how to think like Jesus, how to behave like Jesus, and, and love like Jesus, and live in submission to God, that we become agents of healing and light in the world around us. And see, like this is critical to us. We have to understand that that we are a people who are called to be agents of the Lord. We are His ambassadors. We, uh, we proclaim a message that He gives us. We are His representatives here on earth. And so as such, we are agents of healing and light in this world. Man, that's exciting. I mean, think about that. Like So often, people come to me and say, man, I'm just looking for purpose in life. Be salt. Be light. And imagine what that could mean for the rest of your life. The adventure of faith that you are called into, that I am called into, is one of the most satisfying um, and exciting and exhilarating things we could ever be a part of. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, Jesus reveals our identity and our purpose kind of into his package. And he asks us to own up to it. We must be what we are. That's the premise here. We must be what we are. So what are we? What's my identity, really, when it comes to this? And there's lots of things within Scripture that tells us uh, our language about our identity. You know, we are children of God. We are saved and, and these kinds of things. But one of them is this idea that I am salt. I'm salt. Now, there is earth, the world, and then there's you, salt. Jesus isn't asking for volunteers here in his statements. He's, he's not asking, hey, anybody out there, raise a hand. You want to be the salt of the earth? No. You are the salt of the earth. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. It's not an invitation. It's a statement of fact. You are the salt of the earth. And so whether or not you want to be, you're salty. And that can be a really exciting thing for us. Like, it is forceful. It is this challenge to us. It says, look, you and, and only you, not talking about anybody else, but Jesus is specifically talking to you. You are salt, not just, oh yeah, that person over there, they're salt, not me. No, you are salt. You're the salt of the earth. There's purpose to who you are and what you do. And so the question is not whether or not we are salt. The question is, are we functioning? as the salt that we're called to be. And so since this is my identity, 
You have to start looking and say, okay, so what is the function of salt? Well, one of the things we learn about salt, especially within the context of Scripture, is that salt is a preservative. And so one could say that I hinder the decay of the world and emphasize its best qualities. Literal salt has a preserving effect, and it adds flavor to the meat that it's preserving. It was absolutely essential to the ancient world. Preserved meats, like it, it preserved meats and fish from rotting. So what would happen is you would catch it and you would pr uh, prepare the meat, and then you would rub it in salt as this preservative, and that preservative would elongate the lifespan of that particular meat, and so then you wouldn't be eating any rotten meat. Many of Jesus' followers were fishermen, and so they would pack fish and salt for long journeys, and they would keep it fresh on its way to the market. And so the word displays a constant ten this, sorry, this world displays a constant tendency to deteriorate. It can't stop itself from going mad. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says this: For the message of the cross is foolishness, listen, to those who are perishing deteriorating, going bad, living in sin, and destined to the wrath of God. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so what we know then is that salt is a preservative, and our role as salt is to go and preserve mankind. In other words, the message of the cross that we bring is a preservative. People move away from decay to life. And when each community is true to itself, the world decays like rotten fish, while the church can hinder that decay. That's our role. That's what we do. Salt and light. And salt is a, it's a very stable compound. That's the other thing that we know about salt. Uh, it can't just, strictly speaking, lose its saltiness. And so w this irony of Jesus' point is actually a form of comedy within the text. And don't know if you knew that, but Jesus told jokes. And along the way in this, he's saying, listen, if salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? The reality is that salt can't lose its saltiness. And if salt loses its saltiness, it ceases to be salt. That's it. It ceases to be salt. And so his point is sort of this inconceivable situation. And, and salt can't stop being salt, but it can become contaminated and useless. Jesus said it could become tasteless in the ancient Near Eastern world, what we know is that salt wasn't terribly refined. So it's not like the refined salt that you might have, like your table salt nowadays. White powder contained sodium chloride, but there was a lot of dust and stuff within that salt as well. And so one could say that it became good for nothing if it was too diluted, if it was too impure. Uh, the same is true of the disciple who is diluted by the world. If we're impure by the world, if we're diluted by the world, if salt loses its saltiness, it cannot be made salty again. Mark chapter 9, verse 50 uh, in the Amplified says it this way. Salt is good and useful, but if salt has lost its saltiness, its purpose, how will it be made salty again? Have salt within yourselves continually, he says, and be at peace with one another. Have salt within yourselves. I am salt. It's my identity. And my function is that I hinder the decay in the world and the people around me with the message of the cross. And I emphasize the best qualities that are in the world. But what are my influence? Like, how, do, how does that play out? Well, I'll tell you this. Our influence depends on our distinctiveness and not being identical to the world. It, it's, our, it's being distinctive, not being identical. You quite simply 
the salt uh, that the salt retains its preserving and season seasoning qualities. That, that's a distinctive thing. Distinct answers is what we have to tough questions in life. Like our message is not a mirror image of the message of the world around us. We offer something different. And in, in the answers that we offer should cause people, or even just the way we live, should cause people to wonder things about us. Like, how is it that I can't conquer this habit, but this person has? Uh, why is their love so deep? This is a question people should be asking of us because they're witnessing that in us. Which is, of course, other questions, right? How is it that she can forgive and not hold on to this grudge, but I have been hanging on to this thing and it just seems to have power over me? These are the most compassionate, patient, kind people I've ever met. I wonder why. Or how about this one? I've never seen such integrity. This guy wouldn't even think of taking a dime that isn't his. I mean, these are our distinctives. These are the things that should be setting us apart in terms of what it means to be salt. We live as people who are redeemed people and, and called to a higher way of being and living. And so when the, this, is, this is critical to understand that when the church is different from the world, the world is attracted to Jesus. You hear that? When the church is different from the world, the world is attracted to Jesus. When we're the same as the world, well, then we're measured by the same thing. And so then it, the church doesn't have a flavor at that point. It's bland. But when we're like Jesus, then we attract people to Jesus. Indistinguishable from the world causes us to be useless. So what height from which to fall, right? You go from, from people who are being called salt of the earth and, and, and light to the world to being people who have this gospel proclamation that is a salvation message to everybody. So we move from saviors of society to stuff on footpaths, losing its saltiness. We're to confront people with truth in contrast to the lies that are lulling people to sleep with distinct answers. And we should also have distinct attitudes in our beliefs, like not to mingle so much that we become diluted. We serve no one by attempting to minimize the differences between what it is to be a believer and what it is to be a non-believer. And it's not to do as this comparison to say, oh, we're better or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's not what this is at all. But we don't serve anybody by trying to make ourselves look the same. One of the great tragedies of the church is the constant tendency to conform rather than develop a true counterculture. We think differently with the mind of Christ. Chuck Colson, uh, famous author, uh, heavily involved in American politics for many years, he, he wrote this. He says, through his breakpoint commentaries, he challenges me to be saltier than I am, to confront issues that are that really are causing further rottenness, and to praise those things that enhance life as God intended. You and only you are the salt of the earth. You must be what you are. You must not fail the world you are called to serve. Like this, this is who we are and what we're called into. And so that's like one part of the identity, right? Like we're called the salt of the earth and there's this preservative language and and, um, and it's an amazing language. But then there's this other language of what it means to be light. And in verse 14, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill, some translations say a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. And so what is my identity? I am 
light. What does it mean? Like Jesus says, Jesus himself says of himself that he is the light of the world, right? He says, I am the light of the world. And here he's saying that you are the light of the world. You and me, the church, the body of believers are the light of the world. And again, he didn't say, hey guys, who wants to be the light of the world? Who's, who's my volunteers? You know, anybody show hands? Nope. He doesn't say, who would like to be the light of the world? Or even, hey, you know what? You know what the world really needs? Lights. He didn't do that either. The question is not whether or not we want to be. But since we are the light, do we serve the purpose of being light? And this language here, it's a, it's a forceful language. It's a, it's a you and only you are the light of the world. It's that forceful language. And, and when we talk about what it means in terms of our function, you ready? As salt, we preserve. We, um, we make sure that the decay is gone and we, we bring life to things uh, in, in terms of prolonging life. And, and, and as light, this is awesome. Are you ready? As light, you and I dispel darkness. Does that not sound like an adventure? Like as light, we dispel darkness. It's absolutely essential light is that way uh, in terms of in the ancient world. And it's essential for us today. Like, have you ever experienced darkness, like complete and total, absolute darkness? Children are afraid often of that kind of darkness because they, they don't know where they are, or what dangers might be lurking around the corner. Uh, in July 13th, 1990, uh, 1977, there was a blackout in New York. And uh, lightning had knocked out much of the power of the city. Time Magazine called it the Night of Terror, or a Night of Terror. Mobs smashed windows. There was looting and hauling away of merchandise. And there was about 4,500 people, get this, 4,500 people that were arrested. And they did $61 million of damage. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, that is a real picture of dark, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy. We don't even think that way in our communities. The world, you could say, is shrouded in thick darkness. And when you live in darkness, you have no ray of light. You can't even find your way home. And many are lost and they don't know their way home. And we are here to point that way. The way back to God. And by being light, you know, people look at us and they say to themselves, like, you are light. Like, you are a follower of Jesus. And he said it. Jesus said it. He says, listen, a city on a hill, a town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And so the implication of this is really straightforward. I cannot conceal the truth that I know, or the truth of who I am when I'm in the light. I dispel darkness. It's my function. It's my purpose. It's what I do. And my influence in the world depends on being visible, not concealed. Listen, my influence in the world depends on being visible, not concealed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, pastor during World War II, one of the guys who actually attempted an assassination plot against Hitler. He was, he was sent off to a concentration camp where he ultimately died. But he says this, a community of Jesus, Jesus which seeks to hide itself has, has ceased to follow him. I'll say that again. 
A community of Jesus, which seeks to hide itself, has ceased to follow him. Jesus expects that bowls be removed and lampstands discovered. Think about that. He expects that bowls be removed and lampstands being discovered. You are light and you have purpose. And that purpose is to dispel darkness. Don't cover up. Don't set a bowl on top of yourself. Be discovered. Be light. He says, I'm going to produce in you such a distinct behavior that you'll be noticeable as light shining in a dark place. If salt can lose its saltiness, then it also said that essentially that light can lose its ability to be light. And Matthew 6, 23 talks about the light within us. And if this light that's in us is dark, how dark is that light ultimately? Because it's just talking about the notion of desperation of it. And so we got to remove the bowls that cover our light. So what are the bowls that cover our lights? Well, I want to suggest to you that we got to remove the bowl of indifference. There should be no such thing as indifference or uncaring disciples. No such thing. People are lost in darkness. How can we not shine? We got to remove the bowl of fear. I wonder what would happen if we did shine. Matthew 5, 10 to 12 says that, uh, that the outcome ultimately could be persecution. Stephen Kirsch Chapman is a fairly well-known Christian musician. Uh, he had he was at the Grammys, and uh, it's interesting. He had this microphone stuck in his face, and and the reporter says, "Hey, Stephen, you got anything you want to say to Howard Stern? You know Howard Stern, the the uh, shock jockey, like radio host, that kind of thing. Uh, you have anything to say to Howard Stern?" And so he turns and he notices that they're all he's already being filmed. This is on camera, so whatever it is he's going to say next, this is going to be recorded and shown everywhere. So here's what he does. He says. And I'll quote it here. Yes, Howard Stern, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ loves you and died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And if you ever want to talk about how he can come into your life as your Lord and Savior, you can give me a call anytime. Take the bowl off. Don't be afraid. Take that bowl of fear off. And in the next coming weeks that came above from this Stephen Curtis Chapman quote, the tape began to play again and again and again. And they were making fun of Stephen Curtis Chapman. That's that sense of persecution, right? It's the thing we're often a lot afraid of here in North America. Will we be rejected? Will someone say no to us? Will we get mocked? Well, he was mocked, but he knew that he was light. And as light, he did not allow that bowl to cover his light. His lampstand was discovered. His testimony was shown, and the gospel invitation was offered. It was time to shine. It was not time to hide under that bowl of fear. And then, and then we have the, uh, this bowl of insulation, or isolation, rather. Well, insulation, that's what I mean. We'll go with that. <laughs> Do lights shine to illuminate other lights? No. Lights shine to dispel darkness. That is their function. Less than 100 miles south of where Jesus was teaching was this salt sea, so salty uh, that it was dead on the western shores of that dead sea. There lived a community of people, and that some of you may know about, some of you may not know about, but it was a group of people that had chosen to withdraw themselves from the rest of the community. They were, you could say, a colony. It was a sect of Judaism, and they were called the Essenes. The Essenes were really interesting people. 
Uh, their library was discovered many years later, and we know that library to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they called themselves Sons of Light. And that's interesting, because light is supposed to shine in dark places, but they removed themselves from the dark places. They insulated themselves from that darkness. And they took steps to stay away from their culture and to let their light, and, and instead of letting their light shine within their culture, they were surrounded by salt, but their own salt was tasteless, as dusty as the deposits on the shore, you could say. And in order to be truly holy, so they thought, they isolated themselves from the world. I do wonder how much we do that. I do wonder. Uh, C.T. Studd wrote these words. He says, Some wish to live within the sound of the church or the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard from hell. Where do you want to be? How should our light shine? That quote was taken from uh, Chuck Swindoll's book, In Simple Faith. Here's what Jesus says. In the same way, let your light shine before men. So don't run from men. Don't hide from men. Don't have a bowl covering your light. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So here's the truth. When we talk about identity and purpose coming together, I am light, I dispel darkness. And that depends on being visible, not concealed. And my method of shining, well, that's good deeds, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about those good deeds, the activity uh, that we have as being new. But we got to get out from under this bowl and we got to shine. Your salt, your light. And so here is what Jesus, I think, would say to us. He says, this world is rotting and it needs salt. This world is dark and it needs light. It needs me and I'm sending you. You must be who you are. You must be salt. You must be light. Because any other life is a sham. Look, if you're lacking direction, if you're a person who ever doubted yourself, then think of this. The world needs you. It needs you. How will decay be hindered in your piece of the world? If you're not there, if you're not active in it, you are there as salt. You hinder the decay. Be salt. Who will shine the light on your street, in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends? You see, you're needed to be light. You're needed to be salt. Be who you are. And anything that comes into your life that, that tells you that you are not these things, just understand that that's a lie from the evil one that feeds your insecurities, that is intended to lull you to sleep and away from the purposes that God has in your life. You want to know what your purpose is in life? Pretty straightforward. Be salt. Be light. This is your identity. It also has function. Disciples of Jesus can have a profound impact on the world. So here's what I want you to do. This is going to be very straightforward. For this week, what I want you to do is I want you to read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16, and determine within yourself to align your life daily to what you read in these passages. And that's it. 
We are called the salt and the light of the world. And I believe the expectation of Jesus is that we will be what he has called us to be. We will live within our identity and live out our purpose. You are new and you have a new purpose. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you for your words from your scripture. And Lord God, even though we may have heard these words before, I pray, Jesus, that we will engage with them in a fresh way and in a determined way that they would accept the truth that we are salt, that we are preservatives, that we, Lord, we fight decay. Lord God, that we be light, that we dispel darkness, that we model what it means to be your followers, that we would live this life as you lived. And in doing so, Lord, that we will become a contagious community that invites other people into this new purpose. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.